Hello and welcome to Business Leader Conversations, a new show where we'll be talking to interesting and inspirational figures from across the business world. Today, we'll be speaking with Richard Glynn, uh, the former CEO of Sporting Index and Lad Brooks. He's also the founder of 87%, an innovative digital platform that empowers businesses and individuals to understand, measure, and improve their mental well-being. Uh, we're really, really happy to have Richard on the show today. Uh, if you'd like to find out more about Business Leader, our print magazine, or any of our events, uh, please visit us at businessleader.co.uk. Uh, we'll get over to Richard now. Richard, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. How are you doing today? Ah, I think that today's a good day. I had a couple <laughs> of really nice meetings this morning, but I have to say that uh, I'm somebody who really likes getting out and interacting with people and the constancy of the lockdown has meant that I've had to change the way that I approach it. The great thing is having all the family here, which is a once in a lifetime experience. So I try to focus on that as an amazing thing and, and work my way through the privileged tedium, I think, is how I would, would class the way that I live at the moment. Privileged tedium. Yeah, I think many people would echo that same thing. Um, so, so I said um, in the introduction, um, you know, I gave a little bit of uh, history to your to your business life, um, but we'll start right at the beginning, if that's all right. Um, what was life like for you, kind of growing up, um, and did you always have kind of a drive to to be in business? My family were a, a sort of an immigrant family, a, a Jewish immigrant family, and there was always uh, lots of food. And no money. I was the youngest of four, but actually it was one of those typical extended families. You know, every meal was 30 people. And so being the youngest of God knows how many grandchildren, you're, you're sort of just very much left to get on with it. I was really lucky that in uh, I, I was proud to be scholarshiped through, uh, through Leeds Grammar. And I think that was my earliest insight into the world of giving back. I'm watching my dad's face every year when the fees came through for sort of 23 pence. You know, it was amazing just seeing the pride on his face that the kid could go to this selective school. And I think that started the drive. All of the kids have, in their own ways, relished the opportunity to just keep going. And I think the older you get, the more you learn and the more exciting it is to look forward to the next stage. So early family life was wonderful was very supportive, but there was never any pressure on us to do anything. We were very much just left to to work as hard as possible. That was the one thing that was instilled in us to have incredibly high value sets, but then just to forge our own careers in whatever it was. Your, your first um, kind of rung on the, on the business ladder, um, what was your first um, kind of role and, and how did you come across that? Oh, my first rung on the big business ladder was by the age of 12, I had a car cleaning round, a newspaper round, and was selling goods in school from my locker. So, you know, if we need a new pair of shoes, the best way to get it was to, to flog some other shoes and, and make some money. So I always enjoyed that side of things. But, but interestingly, that wasn't the perceived path for me, the perceived path, you know, when, where I came from, you either went to be an accountant, a lawyer, or a doctor, if you were perceived to have intellect. And, and I was really like a fabulous schoolmaster at work who said, Glynny, you're an argumentative old sod. You, you, you know, you like throwing a rugby ball around. I'm going to get you into Oxford and you'll go and do law there. And to be honest, that was, as, that was how it happened. Uh, so my my early career was was mapped out for me. This wonderful teacher 
basically told me where I was going to do, what rugby I was going to play, and what subject I was going to study. And, and so I became a lawyer. So the, I'm sure becoming a lawyer kind of gave you your first glimpse into kind of the, the corporate world. Um, and, and, you know, the corporate world itself is seen very much, you know, kind of uh, a doggy dog kind of cutthroat, all the kind of cliches you can come up with, really. Um, so you mentioned at school, that's where you kind of got your mantra of giving back. Um, did you did you ever feel like those were kind of opposing views when you kind of first went into the corporate world? Um, or did that even cross your mind at that stage? I, I don't think it crossed my mind. If I'm if I'm really honest about it, I was so excited with the sort of people who I was meeting. You know, the first the first deal I was ever involved with were, was the, the the lawyer was Stanley Berwin, who is just an icon in the world of law. And I was lucky enough to be one of the very very early people taken on in that firm. And you know, the first deal I ever did was Jimmy Goldsmith's hostile takeover of BAT. And there were remarkable people, you know, meeting with Gilbert Beau, with Jimmy Goldsmith, with Packer, and created some dear friends from that deal. You know, a gentleman called Rory Cullen, who went on to be number three at, uh, at one of the big banks, you know, has become a dear friend from hundreds of years ago. You didn't have time to to wonder what these people's ethics were when you were, when I was pouring coffee for them and, and, and amazed that at two in the morning, I could be in a room with these icons and just listening to them and sucking up everything about these people. But to be honest, I was so in awe of them that it was it was just the most amazing experience. But picking up on your point, Josh, I, I, I don't believe there is any contradiction at all between being a decent person, between having incredibly high values and trying to make your business as efficient as it possibly can be. We're going to switch gears a little bit and kind of go to um, kind of fast forward to your sporting index and, and Ladbrokes days. Um, how, how did you find that jump kind of going from from the corporate law over to kind of, you know, kind of effectively running your own companies like that? How, how did you find that that transition? Well, I relied heavily on some incredible people who looked after me. Uh, you know, the first guy who ever looked at, after me was a guy called Sir Michael Lockett. And Mike was just one of the most passionate, insightful men that has ever mentored me. And Mike taught me an awful lot about how to do things and how not to do things. And then there were some incredible people who took me into the worlds of sporting index and working with people like, you know, Morris Satchi was just another incredible eye opener. And I suppose a sort of a theme is developing there, which is if you're, if, if, you know, if, if you're not very bright and you haven't got very much talent and, and there are people around you you can steal from, then, you know, I suppose most of my life is about stealing from these really incredible people and seeing if I can adapt it to the way that I do it. And I've always enjoyed uh, having people there who I really admire and look up to and, and unashamedly ask them, you know, do you mind if I borrow that phrase from you or, or that way of doing things? And and so I was very lucky being sort of uh, coached through into, into my own career. So you, you obviously held some very high level positions, both at um, Sporting Index and at Ladbrokes. Um, the gambling industry itself, it's always struggled to shake its fairly negative image, um, <laughs> despite all of the campaigns around kind of responsible gambling. Um, did, when you entered the the the, um, the industry, did you feel like there was any difficulty um, when you entered those companies, or did you see it as more of an opportunity to kind of create some positive change? Oh, definitely the latter. 
I mean, most definitely the latter, uh, particularly in the Ladbrokes area. You know, it's it's well documented that one of my aspirations was with not not just with Ladbrokes, with, with the industry, was to create an authentic, sustainable, heavily regulated but free market approach to gaming. And I genuinely believe that if you can put those parameters in place, that people who pay taxes should be able to spend their money on entertainment how they want to do it. And gambling, when it's done well, and gaming is is an incredibly exciting form of entertainment. When it's done badly, it's corrosive. Unfortunately, because I was uh, relatively junior and under a lot of pressure to transform Ladbrokes, I didn't have the power base to put into effect the changes that we wanted to try and put into effect in the world of gambling. And there were some some really established old uh, statesmen in the business who I think understandably, if incorrectly, uh, had seen the industry move from uh, an illegal industry to a legal industry and felt that that was such a fundamental change that people didn't perhaps give the industry the credit that it deserved. But, you know, that was the 60s and now we're talking about 2010, the ways that we do things had to evolve and we didn't evolve quick enough. And I think that the regulation that's coming down on the industry is in part because the industry didn't grasp that well enough. And there's a a very well-known occasion in the industry, uh, which was called the Marks Club Dinner, that I got all of the chief executives and regulatory officers into into a dinner And we proposed that we would lead the industry based on fact we would all get together, we'd put competition aside, and we'd create the gambling equivalent of the Portman Group and go to the government and offer them that we would fund a highly regulated industry. Of course, I think a number of them saw that a few of the players in the room were more vulnerable to competition than others. And so, unfortunately, personal interest took over. And I regard that as a real failure. You know, if I'd have had probably more political nous, which is not something ever, anyone can ever say that I've been particularly good at. Uh, if I'd have had more political nous, uh, I think we could have done a much better job of creating a modern industry, probably rather like is happening now. I, I think they are changing now. So, Richard, I'm going to ask you to take a step back now and just kind of look at, you know, kind of your your, your history in business and kind of give me observations, really, um, because failure in business still has quite a negative connotation with many people. But it is a common thread with most people who have been, you know, who are successful. Um, do you believe it's, in, it's important to talk about failure more? And have you found attitudes have changed um, towards failure throughout your career? Uh, not fast enough. Not fast enough. Uh, um, uh, You know, failure is just inevitable part of learning. I was always taught when I was very, very young that the the reason that the airline industry has so few accidents is because they've instilled a zero penalty learning culture for any incident. So every pilot who has any incident discloses it. And the world airline industry share that, they learn from it, and they communicate it round. And if you take that same approach to yourself and your team, then of course, uh, there are consequences for getting things wrong consistently. But the best part of it is if you can learn from it. Um, the hardest part is learning for yourself, where you feel that perhaps you've been wronged or you feel that history has regarded you wrongly. Uh, all of those things after you 
overcome the emotion, after you've overcome the, the, the disappointment, are things that you can genuinely learn from. And, and the, the one great thing that I think gnarled old generals with scars can do more of is talk about it. And the more you give people the uh, legitimacy to talk about how they got things wrong, the more we can all learn from it. And, and the truth is the, 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 the whole stool's been turned upside down now. You know, the young digital natives are teaching us so much more than we can ever teach them. So if we can if we can give back a little bit of that learning and that cultural imperative that says, hey, you may be great on ones and zeros and you may be able to do a CPA much better than I can, but actually the cultural imperative we can set in the team, we may be able to give a hand to. Then I think there's this incredible symbiosis that allows business to really move on and move forward. And, and that loss of experience of some of the older guys, not the, the the Lord Roses of the world who've been incredibly successful, but sort of guys like me who are sort of middle-ranking businessmen who've got a bit of experience, it, getting a, a community together where we can all share and talk really openly about these experiences, I think, is 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 a really exciting way to go forward. So we're kind of going to come on to your current business, 87%. Many say that we're, we're seeing a, a, a severe mental health crisis because of obviously the pandemic and, and the lockdowns <coughs> and people being in isolation, for example. Um, do you think the pandemic has kind of booted business leaders into giving mental health more of the attention it kind of deserves? Not more, not more than it deserves, certainly more of the attention that is required. There is still an unfortunate view that mental health is ill health. Everybody has mental health. You and I both have mental health. Some days it's good, some days it's bad. Sometimes we feel that we need intervention, sometimes we don't. But in the same way that we all have physical health, we all have mental health and we need to work on this every single day. Uh, there's still a real social stigma in business about people talking about anxiety, depression, about body dysmorphia, about lack of confidence, all of which make up our mental health. And there's certainly been in Britain a stiff upper lip approach, you know, JFDI and all these acronyms about really just not showing any any what is perceived weakness. Mental health is not weakness. Mental health is a fundamental part of your strength. And if you work on it every single day and you put things into your business that create positive mental well-being habits, you create a much stronger, more resilient culture from which comes productivity. There are incredible direct gains for the individual, for the family and for society, but you also get better productivity. And if that's something that we don't feel should be the first thing that we invest in in our businesses, then I don't know what is. So I love ESG investing, but for me, well-being investing is the real measure by which you know how well a business is going to perform. Could you tell us a little bit more about 87% and kind of its origin and what kind of led you to, to, to start the company? Yeah, with pleasure. Really briefly, uh, its origins were I was working with the most amazing gentleman called Andrew Fain, an ex-military officer. And Andrew called me and he was chairman of Great Ormond Street Charity and Hospital and Andrew I was introduced to and together with some other incredible people, we we were tasked with trying to transform the Great Ormond Street charity, which after the Wishing Well appeal had had lost a lot of its revenues. And over a period of 10 years, you know, I fell in love with Great Ormond Street. Who can't fall in love with Great Ormond Street? 
but I also fell in love with the fact that the consultants there who were the most genius uh, clinicians also had a philosophy that if they invested in the well-being of their staff, of the nurses, of the porters, of the junior doctors, of the parents and of the kids, the kids got better quicker. And if the kids got better quicker, the beds were filled quicker and they made more money, which was a secondary consideration to them. And because I'm a, a, a little bit slower and a little bit thick, it took me a while to realize that actually this is the holy grail for every businessman. If you can invest in the mental well-being of your people, they feel better, their families feel better, society feels better, and you can increase productivity as a consequence, so you either make more profits or you get kids better, this has to be the holy grail. When I was at Ladbrokes, we had a really, really tough redundancy program in the shops because we weren't doing very well. And I became really concerned that the managers of the shops where we were moving to single manning may be in volatile situations. And so we invested really quite a lot of money in a well-being program, uh, met police, uh, diffusal teams, psychologists, psychiatrists, comedians. And we did something which was counterintuitive. We took down the cages in a lot of the shops because we'd instilled a culture of well-being and diffusal into the shops that created a much better atmosphere. And I suddenly realized that if you love this concept of, of business as philanthrocapital, that is that business has a much bigger part to play in society rather than just making profits, then you can invest in the well-being of your people. You can help them, their families, the societies they live in. You can make their working day a much better place and time. And you can increase productivity and profitability. This is something which, which really has to be pursued. So I examined EAPs and, uh, and digital interventions in the well-being space for about a year, and then set a team of incredible psychologists, simply two questions. One, for the end user, make mental well-being tangible, like five a day, like uh, 10,000 steps, make it tangible so I can understand my mental well-being, I can measure it, and I can see improvements, I can see areas where I need to, I can grasp it. And two, take all that data and give it to a company, give it to a host organization so they can see without ever having to ask the individual employer to disclose to them, but they can see the heat map of well-being in the business. So they can then tell the employees, listen, we're listening to you without you ever having to tell me. And we're going to direct our resources on the four or five areas that fall under the bell curve that are the real hot spots in the business for well-being. And the, the employees simply say, wow. You're listening to us. You're investing in us. Thank you. And, not, and from that, you can then develop positive habits of well-being in the culture of the business, destigmatizing it, talking more about it, focusing on it, permissive culture of allowing people to have mental well-being. And you quantifiably get better productivity out of it. You know, the Deloitte Monitor report says it's on average a 4.2x return on the investment you put into mental well-being. You know, the stats that are coming out of 87% now show that over a three to four month period, you can get a 20% uplift in focused mental well-being in your workplace. And one of our clients who, who's done uh, a correlation on us, they, they received an 8.9x ROI on their investment. 
in, in a social housing employer. I mean, that's an most incredible return for a program of investing in the mental well-being of your people. That, to me, that data insight that you can get is the core for every well-being intervention or every well-being policy that should be in every business going forward. And it can only be a matter of time before this has to become statutory. As you said, it's it's a no-brainer from a business perspective. Um, but is there a kind of anything, any change, if I could say, you know, get you in front of someone from the government and say, right, give them one or two changes you'd like to see, what, what would those changes be? The first change would be everything has to be based on data. You know, at the moment, however well-meaning, putting fruit on reception may not be what your staff want. So the first thing that I would say is that everybody should be using data and data insights about the mental well-being of their people. From a government's perspective, and I, and I think most of the, the senior political parties are doing this, they acknowledge now that if an employer takes responsibility or, or helps the individual take responsibility for their well-being in the workplace, you're doing incredible good. Therefore, a stick and carrot approach, I think, is required. Statutory well-being legislation to require employers to look after it, but with tax benefits for spending money on well-being. I think that stick and carrot approach to bring it into the the heartbeat of business is essential. I would like to see spend on well-being as part of your annual audit in the same way that carbon emissions and, and these types of things. I would like to see LTIPs, the long-term incentive plans for uh, very senior businessmen, have an element which says, actually, you, you will receive this amount of your LTIP if the well-being implementation throughout your business goes from X to Y over the three-year period. I fear that unless we elevate it to a governmental and a very senior leadership, it won't get the impetus that is required. And we are facing a real issue now, as, as, as many people now call it, you know, this is post-COVID stress disorder. We're not even seeing yet the real impact that this pandemic is going to have on the anxiety, the feelings of isolation, the feelings of self-worth in society. The biggest area that I fear is that that real uh, potentially lost generation of 22 to 25-year-olds who have missed that opportunity of starting their careers, of pursuing their dreams, who've been locked down, who are feeling rejected and neglected and and that's the next generation of entrepreneurs and and i would ask government to really focus on that generation and put things in place there that says we appreciate your pain we feel it and we are going to do x and y to give you the tools to give you the training to get companies to take you on even though they may not necessarily need you at this stage because that is the heartbeat of the next generation of business people. And, and I fear that we're losing them because they're already feeling like a lost generation. That's a really, really interesting insight, Richard. Thank you for that. Um, we're just going to switch gears a little bit for my last couple of questions. Um, did, you, did you have any figures um, in, in your business life that you've kind of come across uh, in particular that kind of stand out that you've learned lessons from? Oh, hundreds. Uh, as I said to you before, I'm, I'm a bit of a magpie. So I've been terribly fortunate without sort of naming all these people to, to be able to steal good bits and bad bits from, from people. And, and it's a really interesting question, Josh, because actually seeing things that you haven't admired in people, particularly where they've been successful people, 
and particularly where you perhaps challenge yourself and say, you know, if I was more X, if I was more Y, perhaps I could be more financially successful or get up that ladder quicker. And and coming to terms and being at peace with yourself to say, actually, I don't want to do that. That's not the way I, I feel comfortable being and I'm happy to accept the consequences has probably been a bigger part of my education than actually picking things off people who've been exceptionally talented, of, of whom there have been many. But it's that it's that learning that actually sometimes it's all right to set your own parameters and to say no, and to feel comfortable with not being seen as the most aggressive, the most this, the most that, actually being seen to be be pretty good, but, but really working hard on other areas. I think that's been the biggest lesson that I've learned. Last kind of question. Um, we have a, a segment on the show where we ask business leaders to answer some of the internet's questions. I know this sounds a little bit strange, but just stick with us. I'm just going to stick it on screen now. Um, so this question comes from Reddit. All right. What do CEOs do all day? Oh, what a great question, because I always used to say this. Um, if, if we spent less time talking to, to journalists, speaking to analysts, schmoozing X and Y and Z, and more time focusing on the people in our business and running our businesses, you know, I think we'd recover probably 65% of your time as a, as a FTSE CEO. And, uh, and, and honestly, you know, I'm sure that if you put 65% more of some of these really great CEOs' time back into the business, you'd have a massive impact. So what, what do we do as CEOs all day? Normally, we do what we're told by people around us who tell us to go there, speak to them, answer these questions. And by the way, don't say that. <laughs> no, that's brilliant, Richard. Thank you so much for that. I really appreciate it. Um, so yeah, thank you so much for your time today. Um, if people wanted to get in touch and find out more about uh, 87%, how, how would they do that? The chief executive is Andy at 87%.me. Uh, go on our website. I'd love people to, to join our movement. Uh, mental well-being is absolutely uh, just going to accumulate over the next 10 to 15 years and people can shape their own future. And, and I, would, I would love it if in 15 years time, you know, we were, we were such an embedded part of business, the data was such an embedded part of business that 87% could close down, that actually the platform we'd created and the data insight was such a normal part of BAU that we didn't have to be this campaigning, momentum-driven organisation. Um, and and I, I genuinely think it will happen.